You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Now, the cassowary, the three species, there are cassowary in Australia, as Angie said. In the northeast part of Australia is where they are, and that's... What can they teach us? This is a, a lot a lot of paternal investment, and so kudos to all you dad cassowaries out there, and to all you dads out there, because of course the modern day... Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Um, Angie, are you okay down there in Florida? What, what is going on there? <laughs> like, Jesus. What, are the kids really <laughs> that time of night for the kids or what? It's a, uh, been a long week. No, Chris, I am here. I am here. I, that is a cassowary. Okay. I was like, are the kids not going down tonight or what? Like, <laughs> that's what happens when they're not behaving. The mother cassowary comes out in me and A, I make those noises and B, I abandon them, which we'll get to that when we get to behavior. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I don't abandon yeah, my children right. when they're, <laughs> yeah, right. no, no. but I don't make those noises. Um, I actually yeah. sing songs before bed, but yes, that was a cassowary. That's, that is, Crazy. Some of its vocalizations. Crazy. And I couldn't, I had to start with it and kind of tease you because yeah. I just couldn't get over how much like a dinosaur they sound like. Yeah. I, I, I mean, at least the way my kids' dinosaur books say the dinosaurs sound. I don't know if we know 100% all the noises that dinosaurs would make. There's a lot of different theories on the different vocalizations that dinosaur makes, but I think a living archive of what they might sound like is the bird species that we're focusing in on this week. Definitely. I mean, they call them the living dinosaurs, right? I mean, they're, they're, I mean, related. We'll get to that once we get to evolution, but yeah, they are. Wow. What a, a, a great bird. And I have to say, this is, this episode's dedicated to Rob Lang with Underdone Comics. I asked him, I said, Rob, what's your favorite animal? Cause he's been doing a lot of stuff for us. And he said, the cassowary. And I said, done. And I know it was a bird that you and I were, were thinking about doing a while back. So uh, I'm really excited for this one. Yes. Thank you, Rob. Great suggestion. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. I had so much fun preparing the notes for the cassowary. And I learned a lot. And hopefully we'll get to share some really cool physiology with you today and get you excited and why. And so if you haven't heard of a cassowary or aren't familiar of this large flightless bird, uh, you need to, if you're, unless you're driving, <laughs> you need yeah. to go to our show notes right away or uh, Google image and just pull up a picture because Chris and I are going to try to describe its magnificent head and size and feathers and colors, but you just gotta, you just right. gotta check it out. You have to. You have to. It's going to be a fun episode. And before we get really jumping into the meat and bones of it, you know, something Angie and I were, were talking about the direction of this podcast doing really well. I mean, we have thousands of listeners throughout the world. I know Angie and I joke, it's just our moms listening, but that's not true. I mean, we have, you know, listeners down under. Let's be, you know, yeah. And let's be honest, they <laughs> stopped listening after like the second episode. Yeah, I know our parents stopped. My mom, <laughs> my mom's like, how many have you done? I'm like, mom. Like, you know, go to our website. They're all there. But, you know, like right now, for example, Bailey down in Perth, Australia reached out to us uh, yesterday or two days ago requesting a species. So we're getting, you know, feedback from all over the world. Thank you. To help us, if you can just share your favorite episode or this episode on social media, we can keep growing because we really are are doing this for the animals and we need to keep growing and spread the message of conservation of, of many of these endangered species. Because even in the media this past week, Angie, I, I've read, you know, the six, six mass extinction, it just keeps popping up. So you can help us out and we're going to keep doing this so we can help the animals out. 
Absolutely. And I, most of our listeners, I'm sure, are animal lovers, very passionate about animals and conservation like ourselves. So yeah, your goal is to maybe think of a friend or a family member that's maybe what I would call on the fence, like they kind of like animals, mm -hmm. but they're, you know, they probably wouldn't listen to a podcast about it. So maybe send them some show notes or fun facts about everybody has a favorite animal, right? For the most part, unless you're something's wrong with you. Yes. <laughs> if you have a favorite animal, right? Like even if you're not an animal uh, buff or an animal, yeah. you know, person, everybody still has a favorite animal. So maybe kind of target that ant or that friend that's not really an mm -hmm. animal person and send them an episode that we've done on one of what you think one of their favorite animal is or start a conversation that way. Like, you know, mm -hmm. what animals do you like? And then you could share some yeah. of the conservation issues surrounding that animal or animals that are related to their favorite. And that's kind of a good way to get conservation topics going and get people thinking. And, um, I know it's worked for me in the past because I've definitely in a lot of situations, I know this is going to sound like a surprise, but I've definitely been the oddball animal dork. <laughs> kind of really 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 i didn't know that i no no not you <laughs> or your husband oh, no no goodness. not you two <laughs> oh my poor students i'm such a physiology dork and they just uh, sometimes their eyes just glass over and i'm like this is so cool today we were talking about blood and i'm like yeah. it's so cool and they're just like no it's not and i'm like but i, I think at the end i conv i convinced them about why it was so cool and definitely yeah. if not important, right? So, but that's the thing is if you can do that. And a lot of that's by sharing it to your social media followers and uh, see if you can get somebody interested and just having conversations about animals, conservation, nature, that kind of thing. It would really mm -hmm. be great uh, for us with the podcast uh, to reach as many people as possible, because obviously Chris and I don't advertise or do anything like that because well, that would just take too much effort <laughs> and money. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, I know. And no money, which we don't have yet. So yeah. the cassowary, paleonaths. So this is the group of birds that are the flightless ratites and the flight-capable tinamous. So there's a group of birds. This is where they all have evolved from. Now, the ratites are flightless birds, or they call them the dinosaur birds. So Angie, which one have we covered before that's a ratite? Stump the chump tonight. Yes. <laughs> I yes. Come know. on. It's, it's late here, Chris. <laughs> We've only okay. done a hundred episodes. Come on. Um, We've covered on. a rat tight. Um, we haven't done the Guam rail yet. And I don't, I don't know no. if that is a rat tight. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 Kiwi. Yes. There you go. Yeah! Okay. Yes. Just, yeah, can right. you hear? I'm like yeah. a little kid. I got super excited <laughs> that I was able to find that. Yeah. That was a fun episode. Yeah, 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 the kiwis and, and from ostriches to the little kiwis, you know, some of them are a little bit bigger, but those are the ratites or the flightless birds. And that's the, the cassowary. Now, have you heard of the oh no bird? Oh no, Chris. I have yeah, not. No, you haven't heard of the oh that no bird? That joke was oh built in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I haven't. So, so my, I was, I was talking to a good friend this week, Mike, he's a, a Navy veteran, 27 years and, and really good uh, Greek friend I have now. And I was, I was telling him, oh, we're doing the cassowary. And he's like, what about the oh no bird? And I was like, what? Cause he'd been in the Navy, he'd been around the world a few times. He's like, yeah, in the Pacific, there's this oh no bird. And I was like, really? And he was teasing me the whole time. He's like, you know, you're supposed to be the expert. And I said, well, what is the oh no bird? And he's like, well, it's the bird that the, the testes are external. And so when they land, when the males land, they're like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, bam. And then, <laughs> oh, no. So I, I was like, what? He like was, he was stringing me along. I was like, are you kidding me? So That's shout out, I guess to, you, yeah, shout you out have, to Mike. You, yeah, you definitely have <laughs> bird sense of humor for all uh, <laughs> the birders out there can steal that joke, right? Because all yeah, the birders would be like freaking out if there was a bird that they didn't know about. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they hadn't heard of. Yes. So and there's no kind of, external testes on birds. We know that, you know, <laughs> it doesn't correct. exist. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yes. All right. So anyways, let's get, let's get into some meat and potatoes of the cassowary. Very large bird, but not quite as large as the ostrich. So did no, you know male definitely. ostriches can stand almost three meters or nine feet tall? Like, you know, they're, they're big, right? They, they tower over. Mm -hmm. You've worked with ostriches at the zoo. Did you work with them? Did a little I bit did of work not. with them. 
Yeah. Mm-mm. Okay. No. Yeah. No. Nope. Yeah. But impressive. I mean, they're impressive. Everybody. Oh loves yes, definitely impressive. Yeah. yeah tall, great. very tall birds, and yeah. The the emu. So the best way I think to describe it to people that haven't aren't as familiar is that the ostrich comes from Africa. Mm-hmm. The emu comes from Australia, mm-hmm. and the rhea. Another big flightless bird that comes from South America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the cassowary is, I guess, sometimes often either not, it's not in the graphic at a zoo when they talk about the differences in these large flightless birds. It's often forgot about, which it shouldn't be. Uh, mm-hmm. the emu is slightly taller, but the cassowary is the heaviest bird in Australia mm-hmm. and the second heaviest in the world after as you mentioned, it's cousin the ostrich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're big. They stand almost six feet tall or two meters. The They weigh about 125 pounds or 60 kilograms, what you were talking about. Now, the females are bigger than the males. So yes. I thought that was quite interesting. So the, so yeah, the, the, it's the females are the big one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when, when, you know, listeners, I, you know, everybody knows what an ostrich looks like. So, you know, familiar with the, the body structure. The, the long, cassowary. the long neck and the long right. legs, right? Right. Dinosaur looking legs. I mean, you know, they have these huge legs that are scaly and then they got these huge three toes, which one, the inner one is razor sharp, which can grow up to five inches or 13 centimeters long. So it's like a dagger. Um, can be a little bit dangerous, but you know, the cassowary has this black feathering, kind of like a black ostrich, I guess. But really what, Angie, what's impressive is, is their face, right? Their face and their, their neck features. And then this crazy appendage on top of their head that's called a cask, which looks like a fin from their, from their beak to the back of their head. And it stands, it depends on the species. Yeah. Yeah. I almost want to call it like a helmet. Yeah. (laughs) You can visualize, but. Like I kind of think for some reason, I don't know why I think of uh, Thanksgiving and football and all the yummy goodness that comes along yeah. with that. But like, I think of like a turkey with a helmet on, but it's yeah. not that type it's of helmet. It's not a helmet it's that a covers fin. its whole head. Yeah, it's, it's basically, yeah, like a dorsal fin helmet yeah. thing on top of its head. And that's like I warned you in the beginning of the podcast, Chris and I are not going to do the picture justice. Uh, it'd mm-hmm. almost be funny if somebody listened to our, if somebody didn't know what <laughs> didn't know what yeah. uh, a cassowary looked like. And then we described it and they, they hand drew it. And then they actually mm-hmm. went and, <laughs> and showed it. it to us. <laughs> yes. Somebody do that. It's, it's from right, our description. Go. It's going to be like this crazy T-Rex looking thing uh, <laughs> with the helmet on. It's going to have a football yeah, helmet on its head. I, it I does. Uh, but I, th- you know, and yeah. And so I think the things that really define it and separate it from an ostrich uh, or even Emus yeah. or rias for that matter is, mm-hmm. in my opinion, three main things. They, the feathering is black or dark brown, but it almost looks like hair, coarse mm-hmm. hair, the way the feathers mm-hmm. are kind of fine and shaped. Like from a distance, almost like you gorillas, think it's right? Hair. We just did yeah, gorillas a few you weeks ago. Almost like a gorilla. Yeah, yeah. It really, it's really unique. So once again, mm-hmm. look, look at the picture on our show notes. So I would say that those types of feathers, it look more like hair. Definitely the cask or the helmet slash fin, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. We'll talk more about the physiology, which is really fun and all mm-hmm. the different hypotheses of why it is there still. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Why when they evolved for these millions of years, why they kept it. Whereas mm-hmm. um, the emus, the ostriches and the rias don't have that. So we'll talk about that. But then the third and final main real awesome distinction that I'm not going to do justice to is their coloring of their oh, head. Yeah. So like ostriches that have that featherless neck and head, um, or if you think of a turkey, sort of, uh, cassowaries are no different, except for that it's like this glorious, brilliant blue mm-hmm. and or red parts of red color. Mm-hmm. So it can't be for camouflage because it's no, just no. pretty bold and flamboyant yeah. and like, hello, I'm amazing looking, look at my colorations. So... It's, yeah, they have a blue head for the most part with some red highlights, if you will. And then, of course, they have the helmet, dorsal fin yeah, thing. Cask, yeah. <laughs> cask, yeah. that's what it's and, called, yeah. And I will cask. say that it depends on the species, and we're going to get to them in a minute. 
you know, the cast can be really pronounced or it can be a little bit smaller, you know, depending mm-hmm. on the, of the three species, but yeah, just beautiful. I mean, beautiful birds when you really, you know, it's like, I'm, you, you have turned me in, you and Jesse Golden have turned me into this biggest bird nerd ever. Yeah. Good job, Jesse. I've, Good job, Angie. No, <laughs> I've never really appreciated the beauty of them. I mean, you take them for granted. You hear the bird song. They're so beautiful. And I think we just get so used to it. So now I drive around and I see crows, you know, or hummingbirds now. And I'm just like, God, you guys are amazing. You're amazing yes. animals. They're, they're just amazing building their nests. I mean, spring's in the air here in the Northern hemisphere. So birds are, are busy. They're busy right now. Oh, yes. The behavior is super fun to watch. And, of course, you can be a total birder and go to travel to different locations to try to look uh, for different birds and check them off your list. But there's a lot of birding you can literally do in your backyard, depending on where you live and how, you know if you have feeders set up. Um, or in your community, too. Check your community. There's often a lot of different birding groups or educational seminars and things like that. But it is phenomenal. And spring is in the air. So check those birds out. See if you can notice some courtship behaviors, some circling and diving. Uh, because if you start to, as you said, just be a little bit more aware of it, you'll be able to find some. And then you can always send us messages. We we would love to dork out with you about the different behaviors or the courtship behaviors that you see in birds. And yes, there is a amazing ritual that the cassowaries do for courtship behavior that I had my husband practice um, before <laughs> this episode. So I, it could make me laugh. No, just kidding. I didn't do that, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's pretty hilarious and yeah. And fun. So stick with us for that yep. towards the end of the episode. Right. And, and at the end, after, the reproduction and behavior and all that stuff. You want to stay tuned because cassowaries have a reputation for being dangerous to humans. So we got to see if that's true or false. You know, I read like in world war two, they told us soldiers be very wary of this bird. It could kill you and all this stuff. So we'll, we'll see if that myth holds up to, uh, to truth or not. Now the cassowary, the three species, there are cassowary in Australia, as Angie said, in the North, East part of Australia is where they are. And that's really where they, in the Daintree rainforest, which I've been to, by the way, um, they're off Cairns in beautiful Queensland, Australia. Uh, I'm the so Cassowar- jealous. Oh, I've never been. Yeah. Uh, I cannot wait, my bucket list I cannot for wait sure. to get back there. Yeah. I cannot Somebody wait to get back there. Somebody sponsor us from there. Australia so we can come. <laughs> <laughs> I might be going to Tasmania. You know, I'm going to be going down to Tasmania. You yeah. could do some like live uh, video feeds or something. That'd be awesome. I should. I should. I'm going to go out at night and try to listen to Tazzy Devils. I, I, oh, I hope so. So the three species. So you have the Southern Cassowary, which is Northeast Australia and then Southern part of Papua New Guinea. Then you have the Dwarf Cassowary, which runs right through the middle of Papua New Guinea. Then you have the Northern Cassowary, which is the top of Papua New Guinea and then the surrounding islands. And when they talk about their distribution, their habitat, things like that. They think, they postulate that possibly those birds really didn't evolve there. They just were moved there by traders hundreds of years ago. They captured them and then dropped them off on the island so they could breed. And almost like they were farming them, you know, for food and resources for sailors and things like that. So they are on a bunch of islands around uh, Papua New Guinea and that part of the world, but that's where they're from. Now, one of the things, you know, Angie and I always talk about is, is why give a, a hoot? About, you know, there you go. There's a bird joke from Chris, even though it's not an <laughs> <Nice>. owl. <laughs> I love it. Why give a hoot to cassowaries? They don't hoot, by the way. They have they that don't. big, uh, <laughs> dinosaur sounded roar and that, rumble. And yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. These guys are absolutely critical to the rainforest. They are huge. It's another species. That is so important to distribution of seeds. And I'm going to get a little bit more into nutrition. But one of the things is they have this rare tree in Australia, the riparosa. The cassowary eats the fruit, walks a kilometer away, you know, or almost a mile away, and then does what they do and, and poops. And they leave the scat pile with the seeds in it. And that helps the trees grow and the, the trees bloom because they have natural fertilizer and bam, you have a new tree growing. They found that in cassowaries digestive tract, 
they had a better seed germination rate, 92% after they ate the seeds versus just 4%, no cassowaries eating them. So just, just that plant in itself, even though they have a huge varied diet we'll get to, is so important. These, these species, the, the fruit bats, the, all these and elephants, I mean, they're so critical to a healthy ecosystem, you know, and, and we're just hammering away at it. So that's why I care. You know, I read that. I read how critical they are to the environment and, and I, and I will give a shout out because we'll get to conservation, but Australia is doing a great job with their native species and these things are, are coming back. They're doing a, a wonderful job. So, so shout out to our Aussies down there. Good job. Yes, definitely. And I think you did a wonderful job discussing why we should care. Yeah, Chris, and you mentioned the riparosa, but I think it's key to say that there's many other plants out there that there haven't been scientific experiments done with a cassowary and their digestive tract and their scat and feces. So we're still in an unknown of what other plants and fruit trees solely depend on them. Or I think that we're just at the beginning of starting to understand the mutualistic benefits of plants in the Australian and Papua New Guinea rainforest that depend on these guys. So if we wipe them out, we know that the riparosa tree would be, be damaged a lot, but we, I think there's, we don't know the repercussions, this whole, this whole trickle down effect and or trickle up effect. I mean, they're a keystone species and Australia has definitely recognized that and is working to help conserve them. And if you don't care about seeds and fruit bearing plants and things like that, I would like to pull on your heartstrings that the cassowary is seriously a direct Descendant of the dinosaurs. That's why I opened with those vocalizations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Australia has rec- recognized that they're very lucky to have it. And I think that it's worth conserving just for that fact alone. Um, it's just super unique with its physiology and its physical beauty is, I mean, unprecedented, I think, in large birds like that. Cause no offense to the uh, ostrich, but I and, I and we'll do ostrich, I promise. And I love ostrich and they lay humongous eggs and they're so iconic. And I've seen them in Africa. So I love myself some ostrich. Don't get me wrong. But hands down, I think the cassowary is a lot prettier to look at, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. I love, I mean, I, I'm, I'm easily, my husband, Johnny always teases me. He's like, Oh, anything with like flashy colors. And you're like, Ooh, Ooh. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It is. <laughs> so you see, you're, you're like a bird of paradise in a former life. I swear. It's like, you know, these mating dances. You always want John to, Oh man, John just needs birds to are so cool, man. Like, All of them. Even the ostrich might not outfit. be as beautiful as a cassowary, but. Yes, uh, they're they're fun. Birds are really cool, and they're basically like flying yeah. dinosaurs. And Xander, my five year old, loves dinosaurs, and I learn about dinosaurs every night when I read to him, and he corrects me when I pronounce things wrong. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so. mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, he's uh, he's like his dad. So the three species: the southern cassowary is Cassowaris cassowaris. The dwarf cassowary is Cassowaris benetti, and then the northern is Cassowaris. Unappendiculus. So unappendage, I think, is kind of what they were going for because they have the really small cask. Their cask mm-hmm. isn't as prominent as the southern. The southern's got the big one. The southern, I think, is just really impressive. Now, like Angie was saying, these are ancient birds. They evolved, you know, 60 million years ago during the Cretaceous period when, you know, T-Rex was running around. Non-avian dinosaurs were really dominant. So they survived. Their ancient ancestors survived the fifth mass extinction. Now, it was interesting. I, I didn't get to chime in, but when you were talking about the other species of ratites, they're all in the Southern Hemisphere, right? Think about it. All of them. Good point. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought. Yeah. But yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of them in the Southern Hemisphere. So they think that the ratites used to be able to fly, and flying takes massive amounts of energy, you know, those those flight muscles and everything. But because they didn't need to fly. They were able to, to, to eat more conserve energy and they got bigger just from the, the results of that. So they didn't need to fly to escape predation or, or some of those other things. 
Now, what's interesting about the cassowaries, and we're talking about a living dinosaur pretty much, is that claw I talked about. So think about Jurassic Park, Park, those velociraptors leaping, you know, with their claws forward. Cassowaries can do that. So if they oh, get yeah. attacked, they can leap up five feet high. <laughs> so they have some of these ancient dinosaur, I guess what, I guess the paleontologists probably look at that bird and look at their behavior and things that they do. And then they translate that to, well, oh, maybe their ancient ancestors were able to do that. So they, yeah, they're, they're, they're really, really great. Now, how these cassowaries and other ratites evolved, two, two competing theories. They used to think that Pangaea, the, the large landmass broke up and these southern sections split up and these flightless ancestors got kind of isolated. That's one theory. But now with DNA evidence, they actually think, no, they actually kind of co-evolved at the same time. You know, they came from a, from an similar ancestor, but just over time, they, they evolved separately going back 70 million years. So, so still going a lot of, a lot of debate on that. Now, Angie, I have to say the MOA, I don't know if you remember the MOA, think back to Kiwi, the MOA, very large ostrich-like bird in New Zealand. Okay, got wiped oh, yes. out by humans. That's okay. right. Got hunted mm-hmm. to extinction. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We said it was the biggest bird ever. I'm going to tell you, the mo is going down. It is going down as oh, the champ really? of the biggest bird ever. In September. So we, we recorded Kiwi, you know, last a year ago. Were we so wrong? September, we've never been wrong no, before. No, no. Oh, we've <laughs> never been wrong. Never. <laughs> So we said the, the moa was the largest bird, and it was at the time. But science, and what did you say, research? Yeah, it's not called so we search. Redo- I wish it was called yeah. search. You could just do it one time, and you're done with it. It's yeah. called research. You have to keep redoing it, right? Yes. So recent research last September determined that the elephant bird from Madagascar was actually bigger. So it was actually the largest bird ever. It could... Be almost sixteen hundred pounds or seven hundred thirty kilograms. <laughs> yes, it's enormous. <laughs> I love this podcast. St- Seriously, I know. this is like, amazing. You are amazing, Chris. It's a cow. That's it's the size of a cow. <laughs> that's a big horse. That's a draft horse. I was that's like almost. a draft horse. Yeah, mini draft horse, smaller mini draft, draft horse, yeah, but yeah, stood yeah. almost ten feet tall. Stood almost ten feet a story tall. Like Jesus, and yeah. it only got wiped out like eight hundred years ago. That thing was still running around 800 years ago. They finally wiped well, them all out. Yeah, they were like, that's some good eating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Feed you for a year. Jeez, the 1600 pound bird. What a shame, though. God, oh, I, that would be. Man. Yeah, see, that's what humans can do. But now we know better. And now yeah. we have domesticated animals that can help and domestication of Feed a lot us, of yeah. plants and mm-hmm. other proteins, mm-hmm. uh, preferably plant protein. There's my pitch for. Mm-hmm. Um, for the environment, but yeah. yeah, so we have other proteins, so we don't need to um, wipe out the cassowary or any other, right. any other large birds for uh, that, for, for, we, we know better now. So, and that's why Australia is yeah. working so hard um, to save these guys. So, yeah. And they, you know, and you read up some of the conservation stuff. I mean, people still hunt them a little bit and eat them and pop a new yeah. guinea, but it's, yeah. But it's minimal. I think they're, they're said it's having minimal impact on populations there. Okay. Right. Okay. There, IUCN says there, it, it seems somewhat sustainable, even though their population's decreasing overall. That's not having the big effect. I think it's more development, palm oil, all these other things we've talked about in that region of the world. So cassowaries though, also, you know, we're talking about living they they live long 40 to 50 years that, that's a lot for a bird it is chris and that might be some of their dinosaur ancestry kicking in or something a reptilian mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. if you think about sometimes turtles living a long time uh yeah it's been documented up to 40 years plus in zoos um mm-hmm. i think there was actually one specimen they thought was like 61 when it passed yeah. away mm-hmm. and the wild mm-hmm. it's a little mm-hmm. tougher uh and we're talking about that when we, when we get to behavior we know a lot about the behavior especially from living under human care, but it can be a little tough to collect data on them and learn things about their longevity. But it's presumed in the wild, it's probably 19 years um, uh, or so. Mm -hmm. And once again, that's going to vary per species, 
for instance, the dwarf cassowary is known to be a little bit less, like 26 years when living under mm. human care. So, but yeah, very, very long lived uh, for a typical bird that we've talked about on this podcast before. Right, right. Yeah, they, I mean, just incredible, 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 incredible. And I know there's some birds, like uh, we, we had a request for a certain parrot, so we'll get to that soon. Yes, I can't like wait. Years, right? Yeah, we haven't done a citizen yet, and it's 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 hurting my heart because I'm a huge citizen <laughs> soon. fan. Soon. Um, yes, definitely. I got to, uh, the first citizen I got to work with was Tequila, and she, it's like, who's training who? Oh, no, she taught me. <laughs> <laughs> she ran the show. So yeah, she was a double yellow headed Amazon parrot. So yes, definitely. Yes. Yes. We will get to those soon. And yeah, and those are long lived and we're, we're going to talk a lot about that um, on a different podcast at a different time. But I think, yes, up until this point, this is the longest living bird that we've talked about. Is that, I need, mm-hmm. we need a, we need a volunteer fact checker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And maybe the condors, condors live pretty long too, I think, but yeah, not quite as long maybe. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. We'll we, that's we'll what I mean, we need a volunteer fact. The real podcast, like Joe Rogan, and not that we're not a real podcast. I guess we are real, but like the famous ones, they actually yeah. have like fact checkers that fact are going checkers. in and doing all these things. <laughs> we don't like, want fact on checkers. The no, that's a bad suggestion. I'm taking that out. <laughs> bad suggestion. <laughs> we're gonna get exposed. Oh, what no. PhD do these two earn? Like, oh, <laughs> it's a diploma mill. Uh, we're smart. Uh, yeah, we really know what we're talking about. Anyways, uh, let's move I, on I, to nutrition. I never claim to be smart. I claim to be hardworking. That's yes, my claim. Yes. Tenacious. It is, tenacious. It is. Tenacious. And you could survive a PhD, you know, especially under me. Yeah. It was it was so rough for you. Yeah, there were a few tears, but I got over it. Hey, I'm tenacious. Hey, two and two kids, by the way, <laughs> in grad school. Yeah. So yeah. so touche. You you know, touche. I admire you greatly for that. So, you know, earlier I talked about Angie, you know, cassowaries eating fruit. They used to call them frug- frugivores, fruit eaters. Frug- frugivores. I'm not sure if it's frugivores. 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 Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's why we need our but fact checker. They would tell us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't want to. But. But uh, full disclosure, I would not want a pronunciation fact checker for my own self. We all know I have no, a pronunciation no, no. problem with my Midwestern well, you're from accent. Michigan. Exactly. Yeah, you're from Michigan. That's my excuse. Uh, I mean, it's- <laughs> Yeah, it's always been your excuse. Michigan girl. Exactly. exactly. So, but they're not. They're not. They're actually omnivores. Yeah. Because yeah, they eat they eat lots of fruit and stuff like that, but they eat lizards, frogs, other small invertebrates, you know, um they eat other things. But generally they prefer fruit and they they have been documented almost 238 to 240 different species of plants that they eat. That's what I'm talking so, about. That's why they're, this, yeah. these stone species are super important. Yeah. And they, and it's because, you know, the fruit comes at different times of year. So then they go and they eat that particular, you know, those plants or, or fruit and then they go and, and repopulate those with their seed droppings and stuff. And then they go to the next one, you know, over time. And then throughout the year, they have a buffet to choose from, you know, certain things are available, you know, just like, you know, in the U S for us, like different fruits and stuff. So that that's for them, you know, that, that they do that and they eat fungus sometimes, sometimes they'll carry in. Mm-hmm. So they can be a little, they're dinosaurs, man. They're, they're fruit eating dinosaurs. <laughs> they survived 60 million years. They, they've got to figure it out. Uh, but yeah, on average, they're going to gobble up about 11 pounds worth of fruit a day. That's a, that's a fair amount of fruit. Uh, yeah. For a bird, that's 10% of their body weight. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. I don't eat 10% of my body weight per day. <laughs> never <laughs> good, get off the couch. Good for you exhibiting that self-control, Chris. I, yeah. there's probably been a day here or there where I have, uh, consumed uh, 12 pounds 10% of, food. of my body weight. <laughs> that time that boy broke my heart, you know, with the oh ice my God. cream. Just kidding. No, uh, that's calories. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. No, so. it's, and, and Part of why this this happens is, you know, when they they swallow the fruit whole and it goes down their digestive tract, it 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 really moves pretty rapidly. So they they digest the pulp, you know, and get the nutrients they need, but it goes through really quick. It's not like it it's digested for a long time. So then the seeds don't get harmed. Then they get deposited in the dung pile, and there you go, germination and plenty of fertilizer and nitrogen, and bam, you have a new plant growing. 
Yeah. You know, and that's how the rainforest turns into a rainforest. It's all connected. All of it. All of it. So anyways, that's my, uh, my thing for nutrition. I, you know, you're, I really want you to talk about behavior because I just think amazing being, becoming a bird nerd, just amazing, amazing <laughs> animals to watch. Well, uh, we need there to be more PhD cassowary behaviorists in the wild because we do know a fair amount about them, but cassowaries are extremely difficult to observe and study in the wild. They're quick to retreat and they live in a thick rainforest. So if you think about hiking in the areas where they're found and things like that, it's, they don't, I, I was not able to find, that doesn't mean it's not out there, if I had a fact checker, uh, but I wasn't <laughs> able to find anything what we've talked about in the past in the podcast with like daily activity budgets or daily ethograms of how much time they're spending doing X, Y, and Z. Um, but we do know that they're word of the day. Get ready for it. Mm-hmm. I think okay. we may have touched on this before, but it's a great word. I've been teaching Xander. Yeah. Uh, crepuscular creatures. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So crepuscular it just is a fancy word for they appear to be most active in the wild at dawn and dusk. Which once again, if you're trying to study them and they're not out during the day and they're hiding during the day, it, it makes it pretty tough. Uh, and so now that there's better technology with camera traps and things like that, there pot- potentially is a way to study a little bit more of their behavior in the wild. But once again, that takes money and PhD students and things like that. So yes, yes. Uh, stay tuned and hopefully we will learn more about how they spend their day as far as how much time searching for food, how much time resting. But what we do know, uh, and definitely has been observed under human care is they typically are solitary creatures. Um, and they live in loosely defined home ranges. So if two males meet accidentally, they're probably going to do some, Hey, mister, get out of here. Some stretching and fluffing up their feathers to look tough at each other. Maybe some rumble vocalizations, uh, but nothing much is going to happen. The other, another male will just retreat and go the other way because they're not super territorial. Um, and then of course, during breeding season, when they're not going to be solitary anymore, when they're going to come together to breed, um, things change a little bit. And what research has also shown, if it's not breeding season and a male bumps into a female in the rainforest, um, she's probably going to make him run the other way just by. Well, she's bigger too. She's bigger. And yes. I love this. I love this, Chris. One, they, she does a little stretch and then she stares at him quietly. <laughs> I know that look. I know that look. It's the worst look on earth. <laughs> I know. I just was cracking up when I read that. I'm like, Oh, yes. Uh, for all my female listeners out there, we've all given the look. I luckily I rarely have to give it to my husband John on very few occasions uh, in the seven yeah, years yeah, we've been yeah. married. Uh but my kids, oh my kids get that look. <laughs> they know the look. They, they know, the, know look. the look. They know the look. They know the so, look. So so yeah, so when they're not in breeding season, that's that's uh the male will retreat. She's bigger, she gives she uh she does a little stretch and she uh, gives him the look. So I just thought that was uh made me fall in love with a female cassowary any more than I already had before starting this podcast. And then in the wild, being in the southern hemispheres you mentioned in Australia and Papua New Guinea, um the breeding season does coincide with the time of year when the fruit is most abundant. Nature, mm-hmm. nurture, makes sense. It's all yeah, it makes, yeah sense. It makes sense. And um, and the birds rainforest home, that's going to be pretty much, uh, June to October, more or less. And of course, the solitary female is a lot more tolerant of the male. She's probably not giving him the look when he comes into her territory as, as the breeding season approaches. And for their courtship behaviors, I love bird courtship. I would just like, I want to do like a Valentine's Day talk on bird courtship behavior or something. It's just, <laughs> it's just so, I would just love to study that. Like if somebody would pay me for, a couple months to just study all the differences and then I know make I know. them relatable to people and hilarious. Like 
video. Next, okay, next. <laughs> rem, make a mental note. Next Valentine's Day next year, we'll do a Bird of Paradise or something. I know. I could partner. I, I could partner up with my dear friend here, Melissa. That she's a dance instructor, like a master fine mm-hmm. arts dance instructor. So she like knows like real moves, but she could help me like choreograph it. <laughs> I could do like that. <laughs> Anyways, um, if I had all the free time and money in the world. Um, so, yes. but basically, of course, with the three different species of cassowaries, it's going to differ a little bit. And a lot of this we know from them living under human care and then what we can gather from the wild. So there's room for improvement. But typically what will happen or what's been documented is the male mm-hmm. – We'll strut in a circle around the female because remember at this point in time, it's breeding season. So she's got some mm-hmm. hormones that are telling her to not give him the look. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he's he feels comfortable enough because he's not getting the, the I'm going to kill you look. Kill you. Um, he's getting the, <laughs> you know, so he feels comfortable enough to kind of strut around the female in a circle. And so, Chris, the male is obviously feeling more comfortable being in the presence of a female because she's not giving him that look, the I want to kill you look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he feels, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a little confident enough. Maybe he had a little uh, sip of cassowary beer or something, but he's got a little little liquid courage. Yeah, no, yeah. no, just kidding. He's got hormones yeah. that are yeah. driving him, and she's got hormones that are helping her not give him that look. Uh, and so he feels a little confident, and he will – uh, strut around her in a circle. And while he's doing this, he'll make a series of vocalizations that are called booms. So they're called low frequency booms. And a boom, what researchers know about this boom call is it's loud and a deep call. And parts of it are actually too low in frequency for humans to hear. And some reasons, Searchers hypothesize that it's amplified through the cask on their head. Oh, okay. uh, that's it. I mean, that's yeah, that's really cool. That's yeah, and and that's honestly, really a lot of the dinosaurs yeah. that have um, the structures on top of their heads, the names, unfortunately. Right. Xander will be disappointed when he listens to this in 10 years or whatever. <laughs> I forget the ones <laughs> that have the helmet know. head or whatever, what, what family they're in. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. one of the hypotheses working with pale, working paleontologists is the same thing that this was used to amplify vocalizations. And so researchers think that maybe that's part of the cast. With that being said, there's reports of keepers, animal keepers that have worked with cassowaries before that when the animal, when the cassowary is doing the boom, that they can feel the amplification like in their bones. Yeah, that's nuts. That's nuts. That's really nuts. Yeah, that's that, is deep. that deep and that low frequency. And so yeah. very, very cool stuff. And uh anyway, so he'll be doing that. And that's obviously if you're a female, I mean... If that doesn't get you going, I guess I don't know what. Music to your ears. My goodness. (laughs) Music to your your ears and your bones, right? Literally. Uh, Pardon the pun there. Um, And so, but it'll also make a series of um, boo, 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 boo calls. uh, And he'll inflate kind of his throat sack, uh, if you will, while Mm -hmm, he's mm -hmm. doing that. And so she obviously likes this. And then there's some other courtship behaviors that have been reported, but she, she, she really likes that. And so they will, um, then of course breed. And what's really, really fascinating. Well, that's, it's also cool. <laughs> um, but what'll happen is once they pair up, they'll stay together for a few weeks until the female's ready to lay her eggs. Okay. So together they find a nice nesting site. Um, it's going to be made on the ground with some leaves. I'm not sure if they make it together. I couldn't find that that data. Uh, and the female will lay anywhere from three to five eggs. And the eggs, Chris, are brilliant, stunning emerald green. Like my favorite color. They're just, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like yeah. whoa, super cool. And then after she lays her eggs, she leaves. She leaves. And never comes back. That's right. Yes. 
She's going down as not. She is going mom. down as a deadbeat mom. Because- <laughs> I think it might be one of our, besides the seahorse, I think it's one of our only deadbeat moms. <laughs> and it gets better. Yes. The yes. male cassowary yes, okay. is like the hero. That's right. I know. You're yes. so happy right now. Your face is really I know. I so when I when I read that, I was yes. like, "Yes," because <laughs> we usually get I beat know. down. No, not this time. Not at all, Chris. Yeah. yeah. So basically, not only not only is she a deadbeat, she is not monogamous. She lays her eggs with with um, cassowary number one. What's she? She goes with what's behind door number one, and then she moves on to what's behind door number two, and some. Door number two lays another egg. Sometimes number three, if she's feeling how frisky she is that season. So yes, Uh, so it's Uh, and then of course leaves all those dads behind. (laughs) (laughs) She's just like, I'm done, baby. (laughs) I'm wondering, like, man, an old evolution. Like, what happened? That that seems like a pretty good plan to me, right? Jeez, Louise. And, And and. To defend female birds, I mean, come on, making eggs is so insane. Yes. Like it is so insane. It takes so much energy out of them. Just it sucks the life out of, you know, understanding reproduction from the mammal side, the bird side. It takes a tremendous amount of nutrients and energy for mom to make those eggs. Yeah. You do to go eat. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. Which would be a really fun um, physiology research question for a PhD student or somebody. But I wonder on years where fruit is more abundant, like they've had a heavy rain, and if fruit is more abundant and available, is a female cassowary more likely to lay more clutches that year with different males? Yeah, I don't know, probably. but you, you, you know, so, yeah. that kind of would support yeah. your energy is important for all this. Mm-hmm. And it is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a hypothesis. We know energy mm-hmm. is important to uh, reproduction, especially to, that's a lot of work on the body to lay those eggs. Um, but yeah, so really interesting. And then Chris, it doesn't just stop there. Okay. What we do know from the cassowary species that have been studied is the male, the non-deadbeat dad. He sits on the nest to incubate the eggs for up to 60 days, 50 to 60 days during this period. It's believed that the expectant father never leaves the nest, not once, not to drink and not to eat. And basically doesn't really even have to go to the bathroom until the eggs are hatched. Now, that is, yeah. yeah I did not crazy. have time to dig into the physiology of that, um, mm-hmm. because that's just to not drink. I, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of I imagine, adaptations yeah. to desert animals, but I, I don't. I, I, you know, I have. I mean, I as need much my as it checker. rains, and it's, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, think about it. Like, just let's just you know, just from a scientific perspective, you think it rains a lot. It does. So there's going to be pools of water. There's going to be forage around him that he might be able to peck at and get some water. I mean, that is a critical. You know, if we go back to the bacterian camel, we know camels can go a long time because they store it. Sure. Right? Well, they that's the thing. If, you know. Yeah. And yes, if. The fruit is ripe during breeding season. He's maybe been able to pack on a few cassowary pounds, right? Which would help mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. Uh, go for a prolonged period without food. So, yeah, it's it's uh, like I said, I I uh, I need my fact checker. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but regardless, okay, even if even if the dad gets up once to get a drink or a few times to get a little food or to defecate, bless his heart. I mean, seriously, that's still like amazing dedication. And then the other thing too is we'll have to put some pictures up on the show notes because when the chicks hatch after these 50 to 60 days, depending on the species, they're these, these little chicks and they are the cutest little things you've ever seen. And they don't look anything like the parent. They are so charming. They, um, are, have like brown and tan stripes on them with like little white speckles in there. They're really cute. They don't, they almost look like a a rail or something. And it's probably obviously for camouflage and they don't, they don't have the brilliant coloring of the blue head. And uh, of course the the cask 
isn't fully developed yet that that comes in after they're a couple years old. So anyways, they're super cute and he takes care of them. He leads them to where to feeding ground. He protects them and teaches them until they're typically nine to 10 months old and up to 16 months old. She wins. He wins. He wins. Dude, he totally he wins. wins. He wins. That's, Yes, yeah, we haven't covered wins. anything like that before. With that, I mean, no, up to no. 15 months, 16 months, typically 10 months. Raises them too? I, that's the first species that we've covered that the male actually raises yeah, them too. Yeah, to pretty much adult you know, size. sticks with them yeah, that long. So they, so they yeah. can take care of themselves. I mean, that is a lot of... Dad of the a year. Dad of the year. That's a lot. <laughs> we should have saved this for Father's Day, darn it. Um, I know. This is know. A, a lot a lot of paternal investment. And so kudos to all you dad cassowaries out there and to all you dads out there, because of course the modern day dad is doing all of this and then some. So it t- takes two to tango. I uh, literally cannot do anything without my husband. Oh God! Leading my children <laughs> no, to water imagine. and uh, <laughs> feeding <Yes>. grounds and <laughs> <laughs> putting them to bed while we do oh, this. <laughs> definitely reading them books tonight. Putting them to bed. So yes, but yeah, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. very very fun. Um, and the male cassowary and he. The, Definitely the dad has a big role. It's all fascinating, Angie. Like, my new favorite bird is now the cassowary. Thank you, Rob Lang. That super dads. And then that cask, I was thinking about it when you were talking about it. I know I was, I was reading some research on that, on the cask and some of the, the things that they might do with that. So like behavior wise, you talked about the cask amplifying that low frequency. They think that might have a role. One of the roles I read was them pushing aside brush as they walk through these thick rainforests, you know, maybe protect their eyes and, and, and things like that. Or, you know, like there's things, birds, bigger's better, peacocks, you know, the big fan. So maybe the cask can, you know, the bigger, the better, healthier mate for a female. So maybe some mate choice in there. So really interesting. I mean, just fascinating, yeah. fascinating, bird. And fascinating. Animal. It is. Yeah. And, and to add to the cast too, we probably should have covered it a little bit earlier on. Besides, we're just calling it this big protrusion. Um, but it is made of a spongy like material. What they almost like soft bone of like tribeculae of what's in your not, not your compact bone, but your soft bone similar to that. Um, and then it's covered with a very thick layer of keratin, which we all know is what co- the protein that is, you know, in our fingernails or rhino horn and that kind of stuff. Non-medicinal, of course, right? And the reason I say bone-like is because I, I've i never done this, um, but I, I guess if you've worked with a cassowary, if you actually touch the – it's malleable in the center. Like you can kind of squeeze it a little bit in the center. Uh, but, but I think, you know, so I don't, so soft bone, but maybe it's a keratin that you're squeezing, but the soft bone is under, uh, underneath. Um, so yeah, just really sturdy though. And you'll be able to see that if you look at our show notes as far as how, uh, kind of thick and big the cask is. Now switching gears, uh, going to conservation, you know, overall least concerned, but the Southern cassowary in Australia is endangered. Yes. So, you know, we, their population is going down, like we said. The habitat on Australia's mainland has just, you know, development uh, in that part of the world. Their habitat's gotten smaller and smaller. About 80% of their habitat's long gone. But like we mentioned earlier, Australia is working on preserving them, doing, you know, doing things like habitat corridors so they can migrate and move around like that. The population was down to about a thousand in Australia, but now that IUCN has them back up to about four thousand, so that's good that's news. Great news. That's good news for them. Yeah, because in the Daintree, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Oh, well, just gorgeous. And I also and where I saw crocs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, gorgeous part of the world. And I think a shout out, like I said, to Australia, but to conservation. This is once again a model that we've shown here. In the U.S. with the California condor, the black-footed ferret, the American bald eagle, uh, that if strict regulations and policy are put into place and the people that live in the area can get on board and or, or the penalties to either hunt or poach this animal are too great 
and they maybe learn how important the species is for their their country or for their area that they live in conservation works it definitely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does works it it's does. not easy and it takes a lot of people coming together from researchers to zoos to policymakers to stakeholders but it can be done when you get the right people on board and it's just hopeful so it's just hopeful for other species out there that maybe don't have as much support or their country backing them as much. Um, but I think it goes to show that it's worth the resources of bringing all these people together to do it because there's, and I don't want to say that the Southern cassowary is out of the woods, not by any stretch of the nation stretch of the imagination because populations keep growing and habitats. We haven't figured that one out yet. Habitats keep being cleared and things like that. But the pe- people out there fighting for them are trying to work within these threats. And so I think that it's just, um, it's a, it's a, a, a feel good story. Um, I say that with hesitation, uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a positive, it's definitely a positive note and shows what positive things can be done for conservation when you, when you do it, when you do it. Okay. Well, Yeah. Who's doing? Ah, yes. Who is doing cassowary concert? It's a good lead. Yeah, good oh, yeah, segue. No, absolutely. Well, uh, first and foremost, I want to give a shout out to a group out of Australia called Save the Cassowary, and you can find them on Facebook at Save the Cassowary. Search for them, or of course their main webpage, which is www.savethecassowary. C A S S O W A ry.org.au. Okay. And they're an awesome group. They uh, partnership with the Rainforest Rescue and other government organizations, business partners, Aboriginal corporations, universities, and of course, zoos and NGOs to basically bring awareness to the plight of the endangered Southern cassowary. And along with their partners of like the Queensland government, BirdLife Australia, the Australia Zoo, home of the croc hunter, right? One of our yeah. favorites. Yes. Um, they protect cassowary habitat, which you obviously talked about is a, a big threat for them. Then they also do habitat restoration. So they try to restore the habitat. And then they do a fair amount of research with they, where they collaborate with experts at universities and labs and zoos to Look into things such as monitoring, tracking and monitoring cassowary habitat so they know what to restore and what to conserve. And then population dynamics and population modeling. And also really important is working on trying to figure out the damage being done by roadkill. And so reporting that Mm -hmm. and managing that and try to, of course, implementing solutions and how to minimize that. So we'll put uh, the Save the Cassowary homepage up on our on our show notes and go like them on Facebook. They have really cool pictures and they're doing really great things. So thank you, Save the Cassowary. We appreciate all your hard work and yes. clearly it's helping uh because their numbers are increasing, which is very exciting. Yes. Yes, yes. And again shows that a group's dedicated to saving the species. I mean every species we cover somebody's doing something for them. But so, it's a big, so that's the thing, it's such a big collaboration. And so that's, I think yes. that's every, everybody yeah. I interview, that's kind of what they keep saying is you can't just have one. You can't mm-hmm. just have the, the habitat right. saved. You have to restore old habitat, but wait a second, you got to do research to figure out where they live and how they move and how much land they need. So it's all, it's why it's so good when, Combined, when groups yeah. like this work, together with all the other entities to um, bring in every group has a different expertise too. And if, and forget about expertise, Mm -hmm. if you don't have the policymakers or the government on board, it's a moot point. So forget about it. Kudos to save the cassowary. All right. So this week, Angie, I think the topic was fruit. Now I want to go eat some fruit. I know. (laughs) I'm hungry. (laughs) I kept thinking about that. The tree, uh, what was it? The, um, the tree that the, the seeds do better with the, uh, the right, 
Oh, I'm going to stump the it's chunk. It's not arugula. That's ah. my favorite salad. It's, arugula is no, my favorite salad. Rosa. It's not that one. I, it it sounds is. delicious. There the you go. I, I, <laughs> it I like need arugula. We need our fact checker. I want, like, what does that look like? What does it taste like? But yes, talking, speaking yes, of fruit, yes. go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. So speaking of fruit, do you know nearly a third of all the food produced in the world is wasted? A third. That's, and this is according to UN, horrific. United Nations. Yeah, think about all that fruit, maybe some vegetables going down the garbage disposal. Yeah, cri- yeah. Like, it just goes down and it's just wasted. Wasted, wasted, right? So I thought, okay, how, and, and, and it drives me crazy. Like I buy bananas and then they just, within a few days, they're browning and I'm like, I gotta eat them. I gotta eat them quickly before they get, you know, I throw them away or they just mix them in smoothies, what I end up doing, which is a good way to use them. But, you know, I'm gonna eat a banana. So here's some tips on how to keep your, your fruits. I'll cover fruits this week and then I'll bring up vegetables at another point on another show, how you can keep them fresher or last a little bit longer so you don't waste it because that's, that's energy. That's all that carbon footprint of producing that food, the trucks or the ships or, you know, airplanes that transported it to the stores and then you buy it and stuff like that. Okay. So here's some, some tips for, let's say apples. Okay. Apples actually produce a gas, ethylene. So you want to keep it away from other produce, which is interesting. I didn't know that. You don't want to store apples with other types of fruit because it will have a negative effect on them. Didn't know that. I used to have a fruit bowl, mix apples and oranges and everything together. Not a good idea. Okay. Store apples by themselves. They can be up on a counter for up to a week or you put them in the refrigerator for more than a week and they should be okay. Are they okay next to other fruits in the refrigerator, do you think? I would keep them separate. Okay. But no, I mean, if it's if it's cold now, it, I'm sorry, Angie. That's stump the chump time. <laughs> we need our fact checker. I'm not an apple farmer. <laughs> okay, avocados. Moving on. You know, avocados favorite food oh, all around the world. Had some had some right for dinner on, tonight on top yeah. of my. It was meatless Monday yes. um, here where yes. I am, and so yep, we did a nice um, quinoa bean chili, and then I love to put a little bit of uh, the avocado. Avocado. Mm-hmm. Okay, so ripe them on the counter, let them get ripe, and then store them in the refrigerator. Okay, bananas. Green bananas, keep them out of the refrigerator, let them ripen on the counter or banana hanger, and then you can put them in the fridge. Berries, your favorite. Blueberries, blackberries, strawberries. Don't wash them until you're ready to eat and keep them in a refrigerator dry. You know, you put some paper towels or something around them to keep them dry in covered containers. Citrus fruit. You can store them. So a lot of people have a crisper drawer in their, in their refrigerator, you know, some more modern ones or a mesh bag you can keep in a refrigerator and that will keep them fresh. And then the last one I looked at was tomatoes. Always store at room temperature. I did not know that the refrigerator actually makes them rot quicker. What? Did not know that. You just blew my mind. So yeah. Cause I have a serious keep tomato tomatoes rotting on the problem. I just can't. I buy them and then I can't keep up with them. Or when they come out of the garden, there's a lot of them. So I want them to make them last. So, okay, don't put them in the mm-hmm. refrigerator. Hmm. There you go. I love it. There Thanks, you go. Chris. I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people just learn yeah. that. A lot of people just learn that. Keep your tomatoes on the counter. Yeah. And well, and my other, t- yeah, no, yeah. my other tip too is especially with berries or bananas or things like that. Um, just put them in the freezer. I mean, that's what we do. That's true uh, yeah. They last yeah. up to six months before they start getting some freezer burn on them. And honestly, berries frozen are like candy. Or at least that's yeah, what I good. tell Xander. And he, I think he still <laughs> kind of believes me or, you know, it's like a treat or whatever. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great way. Uh, if you, if you have a lot of berries, like when they're in season, blueberries in the summertime or strawberries, blackberries, raspberries, whatever berries are, um, are from your home country. It's a great way to also enhance the shelf life if you buy them in bulk or if you grow them in bulk, of course. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're always good in smoothies. Always good oh, in smoothies. They're life-changing in smoothies. Yeah. All right. I love it. So the big question, Angie, how dangerous are cassowaries? Cause I always thought they were, I always thought like these, these big ratites are so, dangerous. This is a double edged question. Um, right. because Dangerous to humans. Yes. Okay. Not, I, I'll tell you what. Cows are way more dangerous. Wow. 
Wow. Cows kill way more okay, people think, around the world than that's, a No, that's really good to know because impressed. even talking to my husband, John, the expert, is he's like, oh, yeah, yeah they're dangerous. And I, and I think, of course, working around them and things like that, they're living under human care and mm-hmm. you're closer to them mm-hmm. than probably the average person in Australia that's hiking through the rainforest. Uh, I mean, they are, there is definitely potential there with that, you know, the sharp, the kicking and the jumping and that, and that sharp, that sharp claw, long claw. Okay. They're not going to attack you. They're very shy and elusive, right? right? So unless they're cornered or threatened, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're not going to come up and slash you and run away laughing. I mean, they're, they're running from you. They don't want to be anywhere near you. Well, and honestly, there is only bumping in the woods. That female is probably going to give you the stare. And that means there you run. run. <laughs> yeah. There is only one death known to be caused by cassowary. And it was in 1926. Long story short, a young boy was out hunting with his dogs, sent his dogs to attack a cassowary. The cassowary ripped apart the dogs. Then the little boy ran off. Well, the teenager ran off, tripped, fell. The cassowary jumped on him, slashed him. And, and unfortunately, he passed away. That is the only known death caused by a cassowary. That's it. And we know what 26 people last year got killed by cows in the U.S. alone. So yeah, not, not very dangerous, which was, which was interesting. And you know, the, some of the analysis coming out of Australia, you know, the 150 attacks of cassowaries on humans. It was just basically the bird defending itself, its eggs, you know, or somebody was messing with them or feeding them. So, but they don't, you know, routinely hurt people. Okay. So just, just observe them, give them room and you should be fine for all of our Aussie friends. Yes. And if you're working with them under human care, I'm sure you have tons of protocol in in place to keep you safe from them as well. All right. And that's it. Amazing dad episode. My new favorite. I know. Happy early father's day for sure. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Now that one's going to be tough to to be beat. That that one's going to be tough. Well, we still have seahorse, right? That's about as, but not like 18 no, months like, or whatever right. it was. We're like, talking about time yeah. investment. Yes, yes. All right. Well, we'll see you next weekend. Sounds New good. Species. This was very fun, Chris. Have a great night. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.